Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Welcome to Biblioasis. My name is Dan Wells, and I am the publisher here at the Press and owner of the bookshop. And it is my pleasure tonight to introduce you to a couple of my favorite Biblioasis poets and people, Luke Hathaway and Alexandra Oliver. I also want to take a moment to acknowledge, before we go any further, that this well-traveled land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Three Fires Confederacy, of First Nations comprised of the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. We're grateful to be here sharing these spaces, working together with mutual respect and good faith, which is the only way towards true reconciliation. Books and poetry don't always lend themselves to performance. Some, many, are best left to the reader in their solitude to experience and hear. And if I'm honest, and as I get older, I try to be more honest, I have an ambivalent relationship to literary readings. This won't be the case tonight, which is why I am so happy to kick off this season's schedule events with our two current readers. Luke Hathaway and Alexandra Oliver, as different as they are in style, are among the best performers anywhere. Luke's last reading here about five years ago from his years, months, days, a book selected as one of the top five poetry books of the year by the New York Times critic David Orr is still something we talk about in this office. If you search for it online, you can still find it. And Alexandra's readings over the years have all ranked as among my favorite of any poet, any time, and listening to her has opened up her work to me, putting paid to the notion of formal restraint or constraint that needs to be buttoned down. Tonight's event will involve two readings of 15 to 20 minutes and then a brief period for questions thereafter. We'll start by listening to Luke Hathaway. My association with Luke goes back almost as long as Biblioasis has been a press, and I've been enamored and amazed and intimidated by him in equal measure ever since. As a critic, essayist, poet, his work is brilliant, crystalline, passionate, searching, honest, shape-shifting, unabashed, elegant, as required in its sometimes simplicity. It's always searching in its constant quest to remain true to itself. Luke's is a poetry of many things. It's a poetry of conversation with other poets and poems, with friends and lovers, of faith and the complexity it engenders, of redemption and transformation and the different paths we take towards these. Music has been central to his work from the beginning, starting with groundwork, all the daylight hours, and in years, months, days, but never more so than in the present work, the affirmations. It is as diverse and ranging a book as he's written to date about the enormous power of saying yes of, and of letting it fall, as they say love should. Luke has called many places over the years home, but today lives and writes and teaches in Halifax, where he is a professor of creative writing at St. Mary's University. So please welcome Luke Happen. I was well past childbearing years, and children had, though only three, 
When I was walking on the strand, and a sea gray selkie said to me, Come away, my beautiful one. Arise and come away with me. I am a man upon the land. I am a selkie in the sea. Oh, how can I away with you? A man I have and children three. If you had come when I was young, I would have gone away with thee. So I went home to my husband true and bounced my babies on my knee. But my dreams were full of the Selkie's song. And the Eli, Eli of the sea. So I went down to the shore again and said, All right, I'll go with thee. Come up and claim what is thine own. No answer came from the seal gray sea. So I went home to my husband true and sang to my beautiful children three. I am a woman on the land. I am a selkie in the sea. Oh, come away, my beautiful one. Oh, why hast thou forsaken? Me. This is a book all about mystery and music. In my very first book, there are all these series of poems in which you have a sort of a male and a female voice speaking. And I think that I understood in some ways that, that these were aspects of a self, even as they were also the self and another. I was myself in my kind of young parenthood. And there was something sort of electric and in a strange way transy about this encounter between Mary and Simeon. So I wrote a sequence of poems about it, which I called The Temple. But I had no received language for transness then, and so it was a language that I was creating. And the years went by. And as I was working on the affirmations, I found the ages of these characters changed and suddenly I was conceiving of these dialogues between a younger woman and an older man. And I think that in some ways I understood that I was not going to grow old as a woman, that if I were lucky enough to grow old, it would be as a man. And maybe it's for that reason that I was moved by this little encounter that is described in the Gospel of Luke. And it's an encounter on the steps of the temple between Mary, the mother of God in this tradition, and Simeon an old man, kind of a prophet, who's been told by God that he won't die until he has laid eyes on his savior. And when he sees this young mother walking into the temple with a child, he, he feels that the, the time has come. And he says, it is enough. You know, I, I can go now. Now let me go according to thy word. And just a couple of poems from that sequence. The first one is called Annunciation. Nothing asked me to keep mum. How could nothing, being dumb, put the question? 
not to say present it as accomplished fate. Nobody asked me, and I heard, and I answered, flesh, word, conception. Everything beyond the dock was a bright void, as if the far shore had not been thought of yet. Then a wet of sun revealed the silken rumple of the water. I was with child by everything when we met. Advice. I wanted to talk with you about the child that openeth the womb, the sword that openeth the wound, the word that openeth the mouth. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. But you were pierced and thought about the word that openeth the wound, the sword that openeth the womb, the child that openeth his mouth. And the final poem in the sequence is called Lullaby. Father, you carry, held up by the child that you carry, the child born to a child whose childhood, even childbirth, couldn't smother, who loved her newborn baby like a father. It's okay. You can go now. I am holding you. You thought you had so very far to go, but you are home now. We could share water, they say is taught by thirst. Thirst has worn the path that winds uphill to the well where I went, as I thought, for my water and where I met you first. I met you there, and now I know that thirst is also taught by water. I'll read you three more poems, two from near the middle of the book and one from near the end. I've been thinking on this, uh, during this time in Ontario, about a great Ontario artist, Rosemary Kilburn. Rosemary is a, a wood engraver and a stained glass artist, but both of those arts she saw as preparatory to what she imagined would be her true work, the work of painting. But as it happened, she never got to the work of painting and, and the labors of wood engraving and of stained glass making, which she saw as preparatory, became themselves the work. And I think often life is like that. Our, pre our preparations become the big show, sometimes when we're not even looking. And around the time that I was, I was sort of falling in love with Rosemary's work, I discovered one of her stained glass windows that's installed at St. Thomas Anglican Church in Toronto. And you know, you have all these other stained glass windows of these sort of staid saints. And then Rosemary's window, which is kind of erotic and apocalyptic and floral and fiery and vaginal and extraordinary. And I used to just stand before it, wrapped. And I realized at a certain point that it had been inspired by the closing lines of Eliot's Four Quartets, which are themselves inspired by Julian of Norwich, the sort of great kind of mystic writer who wrote, 
in the voice of the divine, you know, the reassuring words, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. And Eliot sort of conjoined those words to this image of a fire flower. All shall be well when the tongues of flame are infolded and the fire and the rose become one. So Rosemary's fire flower became kind of caught up for me with these lines from Julian of Norwich and and then also with a line that I discovered in a letter that Rosemary had written to her great friends, the poet Richard Outram and the artist Barbara Howard. And this letter was just lovely and long and full of the marvelous particularities of the, of the natural world. And yet at the end of the letter, Rosemary wrote somewhat apologetically, expect another longer letter soon. And I thought maybe that's the refrain of all art, you know? I think it's Valérie who says, works of art are never finished, only at last abandoned. And so this sense, well, you know, I'll do better next time, but for now. So, so that, that refrain becomes part of this poem, which is a tribute to Rosemary. And the poem is called Fire Flower. These lines, a cage that lions you, around all through the bars of which you fall upon me still as light Expect another longer letter soon. Here, where I have wounded wood, and forthwith came there out March light, I walk to see whom I have pierced. Expect another longer letter soon. My palimpsested lines occlude you. Could ungraving them reveal you, or would you vanish utterly then? Expect another longer letter soon. My lines insist upon what is. You haunt me in the hills' green gestures, saying, dear heart, how like you this. Expect another longer letter soon. Since I've been out walking here, the sun has risen, present perfect. Sun rose in the simple past, a fire flower. Where are you? Expect another longer letter soon. And this other poem from sort of the, the midst of the book is a pair to that one. It's also a poem about walking. The book is full of walking. It has this wonderful kind of walking figure by the artist John Clater on the cover. This one is called a sugar bush in Holy Week. Sugar bush, kind of maple syrup woods around where I grew up, kind of Haudenosaunee country, uh, the kind of tributary waters of the Grand River. In that area in the spring, you can walk in the maple woods and you hear everywhere the sound of sap falling into pockets and running into lines, and all the, the trees are, are pierced in the side in this sort of you know, Christological way if you happen to have that particular story in your mind. So, so the poem is kind of a meditation on that. And it begins with some lines from Michel de Montaigne's wonderful essay on friendship. Montaigne writes, in the amity I speak of, they intermix and confound themselves one in the other with so universal a commixture that they wear out and can no more find the seam that hath conjoined them together. That if our shadows rise up like Charlier's apostles, they might at least cast on the ground where they have so long lain, the forest floor re-greening as if it were at last spring, that there prove sufficient summer's growth 
in these regreening trees to brook the Christ-side piercing the spear of prayer for honey in the mouth of death? Or was it life? Or was it spring? That walking amid the risen light, I might confound my shadow in these tree shadows so utterly that I wear out can no more find the seam that hath conjoined them together. And the last poem that I'll perform for you is called Frost, and it's from right near the end of the book. If not a poem, then perhaps some darkened glass to interpose between the one whose mortal cold illuminates your breath and you whose breath illuminates the cold. I got me flowers to I got me boughs of Mecca tree. But thou wast up by break of day, illuminating all this speech, the sun arising in the east, and fire flowers opened there and bloomed and died, and the glass was clear. Thank you so much, Luke. So, as a used bookseller, because that's how all this started, you know, 24 years ago, which shocks me on the let, I discovered many of my favorite writers because I couldn't actually sell them. Their works, <laughs> it's true. Their works stayed on the shelf so long that eventually I just picked them up, and each one in its own way was revelatory. Perhaps this was my real apprenticeship and preparation as a literary publisher. The list of these writers, most of whom I foisted on staff repeatedly over the years, is long, but includes Penelope Fitzgerald and Muriel Spark and Edna St. Vincent Millay, and though she's certainly having her moment, Mary Oliver. What does this have to do with our next reader, Alexandra Oliver, beyond the last name, I guess? In one way, not much, but in another, it was to some of these writers that I turn when I try to give a sense of the intense and unexpected pleasures and discomforts that are to be found in Alexandra's work. She is, to my mind, the poetic equivalent of Muriel Spark. Alexandra's poems are sparklingly sharp, savagely funny, detailing lies of unquiet desperation, domestic alienation, grappling with the world very much as it is, in both its ugliness and glory. Poems which might lull you a little bit with their rhyme and meter and some, into some sense of comfort, only to delve more deeply into the beasts within each one of us, born under some mute star of venom, talons, teeth. These are not poems for the faint of heart. Her new collection, Hail the Invisible Watchman, is her richest to date, a gathering of polished punk poems and poetic sequences, both formal and feral, particularly attuned to this moment of pandemic alienation and isolation and its consequences without in fact being pandemic poems. So please welcome Alexandra Oliver. Thank you, Dan, for that wonderful introduction. Thank you all so much for coming. Oh my God, Casey, is that you? Hi. I'm sorry. Some of these you may have heard before. I apologize. Um, but I'll try to read a fresh, fresh batch. Young politician at a Rotary Club tea. There's that woman running for the council eating cake. Her selfie arm is spangled, tan and toned and perfect as a pencil. Imagine how the sallow mayor tingled guiltily the moment that he met her. 
She has a plan to make the city better. She's born and bred in Sherbet Lake. She knows how older noses love an English rose. She understands the darkness to the letter. Her website is explosively sincere with photos from the cookouts and parades. Her Python grip around the engineer who made it through the marathon, the spades in suffocating soil, the wizard's ball, a benefit for the hospital's new hall, where, stiff in silk, gripping a flute of cava, she grins, the posted comments flow like lava. She lies awake at night. She reads them all. The matrons of the town were apprehensive. The masters thought her age might make her bold, but luckily her views were unexpansive, and happily she fit the tribal mold. Dimpled triplets, dogs, a decent guy. She's never once been compromised or high, but peppers her talk with heritage and tradition, flutters the nation's flag at the right occasion, and swears that Sherbet Lake is where she'll die. When I was 31, I never thought I'd want to wade into a chittering crowd and butter up the biddies, remain untaught by what was free and dangerous and loud. But here you are, nodding over your cake and longing for the spear of Sherbet Lake. That etch-a-sketch of wealth and same in sorrow. Perhaps you'll take it in your hands tomorrow admire their work, or shake, and shake, and shake. I have a son who's a child tennis player. It's a veil of tears, really. And this one is called Seventeen. Seventeen circle the rim of the gym in orbit around the instructor who yells and yells and yells. They listen to him. The fathers in hopefulness peer from the halls. Seventeen scissor their legs on the mats, slashing the air like quick little knives. They are told to develop their glutes and their lats. The fathers remember their way-colored wives. Seventeen shoulder their bags to the courts. Their elders assure them it's not about winning, but wince as the possible pecks at their hearts. The fathers are fat, and their forelocks are thinning. Seventeen play to the darkening hours, then peel off in columns, exhausted and little. They go to the washrooms and tremble in mirrors. The fathers bare teeth, lemon-tinted and brittle. Seventeen eight-year-old creatures are moving. They climb into vans, as if speaking to God, they venture, I think that I'm really improving. The fathers hit gas and set fire to the road. The next poem is called The Announcer. Does anyone here have intercom in their apartments? And you can hear your super make announcements? Okay, this is for you. This is called The Announcer. Our supers once had the brass to boss a helper into tears, the aptitude for fiction. 
The knack of rattling a boardroom saber and waving a bad souffle back to the kitchen. But Francis sank their money in a Ponzi. They lost the jag, the home with 20 rooms, and went from being Bay Street Sid and Nancy to cursing softly from behind their brooms. Charred and muted by the ream of changes, of poking in the washers with a wrench, of reinstalling cupboards on their hinges and scrubbing darker matter off the bench, Lou fell silent. That was until the firm installed the PA speakers in each suite, democratizing each false fire alarm that poured befuddled tenants into the street. She liked to give the drills placating coda, in which she chirped the worst of it was over and felt the old omniscient persona take hold the heft of bringing doom or closure and soon moved on to squeezing in the latest parking fees, the closure of the gym, then what was on her mind, the hidden greatness of her chiropractor, the quiet scam of marriage and the treachery of churches the asps of hope that slither through our lives. She intercommed her wild, despairing purchase on truth, but here no one like that survives. They let Lou go for being loud and odd, but she moved on, knowing the creed by heart. It is the voice cast large that copies God. It is the voice cast large that forges art. I don't know if any of you are actors. I apologize to anyone who is an actor. My brother is um, an actor in Vancouver and he plays villains. And there's a particular kind of thing that he often appears in. Hmm? Yeah. So this one is called Hollywood North. Again, if you're an actor, this is not about you. I respect you greatly. <laughs> Hollywood North. Enter the actors. They're rich in credential. Their agency pages exhibit their charm. They've triumphed in golf on an after-school special and shielded the crew of a shuttle from harm. They've featured as coppers and strippers and spies. A walk-on appearance as lawyer or doctor, a dangerous alien in the disguise of a different alien driving a tractor through sad fields of lettuce on somebody's farm. Enter the actors, the locals, the specials, the coastal celebrities, gusseted, glossed. They've worked in the wilderness, hiding their bushels under their lights, or wait, am I lost? The other way round. They've slaved for their dinners. They've seated the lofty at Sushi Emporia, wheeled on their sunniest teeth-flashing manners while peddling fake leather pants at Aritzia, striving for starlight, whatever the cost. Enter the actors. They come to the party in plummeting garments and collars of feathers and wonder if 30 still means that they're pretty and should they keep trying when nobody bothers. They've never known seagulls, or longing for Moscow, or poked at a manuscript eaten by flames, or scrubbed off the blood from their fingers in sorrow, but look into our faces, repeating their names, 
their own, their own, not the others, the others. I'm going to read from one of the other sections of the book, The Blood of the Jaegers, which tells the story of a bourgeois family in freefall. The characters are Anais, a matriarch, sort of a society wife who succumbs to, she is caught up in a pattern of abuse and alcoholism, and she is eventually consumed by abuse also. She is, becomes the victim of abuse. Emil, a patriarch, he dies pretty soon in the series. Simon, the son, Ottilie, the daughter, who is a kind of an outsider, and Anu, who is another kind of outsider, who is Simon's wife. So the first poem is called Lobby. It's written in the voice of Ottilie, 1977. So here, Ottilie would be three years old. We're making our way through the Four Seasons Lobby. Ma sails through with the cheek of a bruiser, and we pass a chrome stroller with a nervous baby plugged with a rubber mother care soother. She's had a ma couple of massive Camparis. She's sick to the marrow with Pa and his droning, the need to upholster the room with her stories for shopping and snapping and sass and complaining. We're passing the gleam of the oncoming stroller when she, with a gesture both rash and savant, plucks out the soother and throws it behind her. The driver is horrified, wordless and gaunt, telling the tot, scream as loud as you want. The next poem is called Hose, and it's written in the voice of Anais, the mother, 1978. The child had it coming, that jewel you spoiled rotten. My hair was freshly done, stacked like a wonderful cake, to match a wonderful dress, to wear to an embassy party. The little love is four, but malicious to her core, and I swear she came right at me, the garden hose at full blast. I only remember the crack of my hand and the sound of a stone, and the heap of silent poplin on the ground, the red rivulets running. I have three more poems, is that all right? Three more poems, I'm gonna shot. And I wanna say at this point, because I didn't say at the beginning, because I was really bowled over, Luke, what an honor it is to read with you. You are, you are a visionary, and it gladdens and warms my heart to, to be with you and to, to sing forth with you. On that note, let's go back to the 1970s, the Marine Room, and this is in the voice of Ottilie, and here she's about five years old, the Marine Room. Ma takes me out to buy a winter duffel, and as per tradition, this includes a lunch at Eaton's Swish Cafe. The velvet walls undulate with reeds of green and gold, fat amber globes illuminate the booths, crammed with grannies, girls in high-stacked shoes, and men who, lest they might be pegged as old, festoon themselves in flares and sex-lure smells. Whenever we go to eat, I get the hunch that on this day, perhaps I'm not so awful. I stir the bowl of mushroom soup. She smiles a little tightly, pulls the slim sobranis from her bag, and plucks one out to smoke. I crinkle out the crackers from their wrap, smile back, drinking in the scent 
of her good mood, the claret suit, the mediocre food. I've spent hours wishing it wouldn't stop, hoping I'd be good, the one she'd like, brighter than the starlets and the grannies, the chubby starfish plucked out of the shoals. We are all free, and thus she must be too, I think. Look at her smooth red lips, the way she clacks her cards on marble counters, flirts with a manager, bright and cheery clear. She swings the muskrat coat up on her shoulder. I know I'll be that free when I am older, as splendid as a Murano chandelier and engineered for fortunate encounters. One day, I too will smoke and shop, sink ships, stand out from mountain vistas others blend into. And this poem is called Grass, and it's in the voice of Anu. Anu is the young wife of the son who is caught up in these patterns of abuse, and she eventually reaches her breaking point. Anu, 1997. When the cop came, I was ready. I was sitting on the lawn of some house on 49th, having changed the baby's diaper right in front of the big front window in between the toys and sprinklers. It's been seven months already, seven months of my life gone, day on week on month on month. Stay at home looks good on paper, but that's what made my mother hollow. That's what turned us into drinkers. Will my baby's love be heady, like how Simon loves his mum, sugary blarney filling his mouth when I get a different flavor, palm and sweat and soggy pillow every time he fails or angers? Come and get the little lady, constable. The car has room for all of us, for all our wrath. Me, on the lawn of the lucky neighbor, Hands in the grass in twilight's shadow, rubbing in shit with all ten fingers. And this is the last poem for this evening, and before I kind of chug on with this and set you guys free to have some wine and a chat, um, I want to say thank you to Dan and Biblioasis. You are friends of my heart. I've been with you for ten years now. And to all of the wonderful people who work with you, you are you are jewels. You are Canadian jewels. Much loved, much appreciated. So thank you for, for everything that you do. Best practice, Ottilie 2018. It begins with an epigraph from Dead Kennedys. Your emotions make you a monster. We thought it would be over soon enough. He'd listen to the facts and move along, find a job, a house, someone to love. But we were wrong. The guys we knew from way back when went clean. Our much sought after punk lords of misrule took up cycling, ran a snow machine, went back to school. While weary girlfriends, Bev or Jane or Bree, coaxed them into getting on the ladder, finding a special out by the P&E they'd fix together. If kids appeared, they'd step up to the plate cart them up to soccer on the drive, put on an act, they had a cleaner slate, master the high five. 
You'd see them hauling speakers at a gig, drinking Cokes and fondly reminiscing about that night, the ketamine, the wig, a friend went missing. We told ourselves that maybe they were sellouts, but though they thickened up, becoming squares, a part of us inside was somewhat jealous. The God that spares did not spare him. He wouldn't ever soften, but curled his evils into my life and yours. And that is why our mother says so often, check the doors. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.